Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome to the first episode of season five. I am so excited to be back. Um, as you know, if you've been listening regularly, we um, took a, an extended break, which I very much needed, but we're back now with season five. And in this first episode, I am going to be sharing an interview I had with Mariah Fredericks. She is the author of a book I read last fall, and I absolutely loved this book. It's The Lindbergh Nanny. And in this book, Mariah tells the story of Betty Gao, who was the nanny to Charles Lindbergh Jr. Um, so it's all explained in the interview. So I'm just going to get right to that. And I think you're going to love this one. So here's my interview with Mariah Fredericks. Mariah, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Me too. Your latest novel, The Lindbergh Nanny, released November 15th, 2022. Can you tell me about this book? The Lindbergh Nanny is a novel about America's most infamous kidnapping from the point of view of one of its prime suspects, a young Scottish woman named Betty Gow, who was known to the world as the Lindbergh Nanny. Mm -hmm. I absolutely loved this book. I could not put it down. I actually, it, one of my favorite, um, I guess maybe subgenres of historical fiction is the fictionalized real you know, a real situation fictionalized, um, mm -hmm. or, a, or a book about a real person that's turned into a novel. Um, so this was one of my favorite facets of historical fiction. And after the first chapter, I was just hooked. So <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yes. Well, and I know, I noticed that you've written historical mysteries all along, but, um, is this your first about a real person? Yes. Yeah. This was the first time I had ever written about um, an actual historical people. And I do recommend uh, for people who are thinking about doing this, do choose somebody completely uncontroversial like Charles Lindbergh. Um, <laughs> it makes their life so much easier. Um, yeah. But it was, it, was, it was terrifying and thrilling at the same time. Oh, what inspired you to write this book? Well, I've always been fascinated by the Lindbergh kidnapping. Um, I, I was I was a very anxious child, um, and uh, and Maurice Sendak was also obsessed by it. Gloria Vanderbilt mm -hmm. was obsessed by yeah. it, and I think there's something about this story. I mean, in addition to all these sort of swirling supposedly unanswered questions because it does involve a rich, famous family that speaks to the primal fear of children that sometimes the bad thing does happen. Yeah. You know, sometimes there is a monster under the bed. Um, but like most people, my first acquaintance with the story came through murder on the Orient Express. Mm. And when I was thinking about 
if there was a way to tackle a story that has been done, I mean, something like more than 30 books have been published about this case since it happened. And as I was thinking about A New Angle, I remembered the 1974 movie of Murder on the Orient Express, which begins with, you know, that silent scene of the kidnapping of little Daisy Armstrong. And as Mm. the kidnapper goes through the house, it's not the parents that he encounters, but the servants. Mm, And most particularly the nurse who's seeing on the floor, struggling and unable to protect the baby. And I thought, wait a minute, did the Lindberghs have a nanny? Because I had never heard of her. And I write a ladies made series. And I'm always very interested in the the downstairs point of view. Right. Um, So I Googled Lindbergh nanny. And yes, indeed, she was a real person. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, And that you already had experience writing about the downstairs point of view, Mm -hmm. the the people downstairs kind of. Um, So it was almost like the perfect way for you to segue into this type of novel. Yes, yes, it was. I'm always fascinated by what the people who are not supposed to be seen or heard are able to see and hear um, because nobody wants to know this them. Right. So was it difficult though, to walk the line between real life and fiction? What kind of research did you have to do? And like, how did you know when to keep things completely factual versus when to embellish a little bit? That's a really, really good question. Um, particularly for a case like this, that's still so controversial. Um, you know, the first part, the first thing that I had to figure out was, okay, there was a Wimberg nanny. Her name was Betty Gow. Well, who was Betty Gow? Um, what kind of person was she? Was she deeply involved in the event? Was she sort of tangential? Um, and I saw it very much as a domestic tragedy with sort of Betty, Charlie, and the Lindberghs at the heart of it. So I started with the um, biographies, um, Scott Berg's biography of Lindbergh and Susan Hertog's excellent biography of Anne. Mm -hmm. And she had actually managed to talk to Betty Gow because she lived for a very long time. Yeah. And she was intelligent. She had a sense of humor Mm -hmm. and it became very clear that she loved the baby uh, very dearly. She liked Anne and she wasn't so crazy about Charles. Right. So that told me that she was an independent thinker. And it also told me there was family discord there. So I felt very sure that there was going to be enough to work with on an emotional level. Right. And then I did a deep dive into the crime itself. And here I really got lucky because I was working during COVID and I thought, Oh, all the, all the documents relating to the case are in the New Jersey state police museum, Mm. which of course was closed. Right. And I thought, well, we'll only be in lockdown for two weeks. This won't matter. (laughs) As we all thought. (laughs) Um, Right. Um, And 
somebody wrote me out of the blue and he said, hi, we met at a Mystery Writers of America conference and I see you're writing a novel about Lindbergh. I have all the digitized files. Would you be interested in those? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, all praise and thanks to Doug Harrell because he sent me the everybody's statement, the police interrogations with all the staff, um, all their theories. It was, it was fantastic. And I also went back and forth quite a lot with the New Jersey state police museum, uh, archivist, Mm -hmm. Mark Falzini, who knows more about this case than anybody. And he was very generous in answering you know, semi-intelligent questions and probably some stupid questions. <laughs> um, well, that's what we have to ask if we want to find things out, right? Exactly, exactly. So, and then, of course, I read the full, a full, pretty full range of the books on the kidnapping from the sort of, I'm striving to be objective to some of the more, um, let's say, creative theories. Uh, on who done it. So what you're saying is that you got you got all the facts. I mean, you did a, a ton of research and got mm-hmm. all the facts firmly in your mind. And then did you like did you just take what you knew from the actual historical facts and and embellish what wasn't there, or how did you figure out how to make it more? like a fictional account. Um, I mean, it, right. it really lends itself very well to a suspenseful story anyway, but um, I'm sure that, you know, you did some work as far as um, fleshing out characters and, and situations. Yeah. I, I, because the case is so well known and because the police believed that somebody in the Lindbergh or Morrow household uh, was working with the kidnappers. And I find that suspicion reasonable. Oh and I advance a theory as to who that was. But because I do that, I felt like I had to stick pretty closely to the facts and the evidence, which I like in historical fiction. Yes. Anyway, like, I don't know about you, but I like it when it's when I can feel the writer going, okay, here's this sort of inconvenient fact or this <laughs> awkward character. How how do I make this work within the context of the story right. that I want to tell? Um, so there were two major areas where I embellished. Um, and one was the background of one of the characters and you know obviously the second i mean i make my accusation based in the evidence but um right you know i i am it's not a serious you know legal accusation um you know as far as you know it becomes so difficult to know if your creation of betty gal if she would read it and think oh my God, this wasn't me at all. What are you talking about? (laughs) I mean, she would probably, I have a feeling she would be irritated that anybody wrote a novel of her life. Right. Anyway, Um, she doesn't seem the kind of person who wants that attention, but she feels very real to me. But of course, Mm -hmm. I 
I don't know how emotionally she reacted to some of the the smaller betrayals that occur in the book. Um, but I tried to hew as closely as possible to what I knew of her reaction. Um, for example, in the she's left alone at the family summer house in Maine yeah. for quite some time. And in the book, it's an emotional turning point. She becomes sort of bitter about the family mm-hmm. um, and a little bit emotionally lost. That's true. Okay. She did feel abandoned. Well, un- understandably. Her. I mean, I thought that was yeah. insane. <laughs> yeah. No, it was totally crazy. Um, you know, poor woman. Yes. Um, so, but that is based in fact. Wow. Um, so it was, I mean, you portrayed Charles Lindbergh Sr. as a foreboding figure. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't know much about him before reading your book, so I hadn't realized even his, I probably had heard of it, about it before his involvement in eugenics, but I just hadn't really mm-hmm. read much about it. Um, but he has also had strange ideas about raising children, like without yeah. coddling them, and, um, like at all, right? I mean, can you share what you know about the Lindberghs with our listeners? Oh, sure. I mean, probably um, not everything you know about them, but <laughs> just in a nutshell. There's, I mean, the scene that everybody has mentioned in talking about the book is there is a, a scene in which Charles Lindbergh finds it extremely funny yes. to hide the baby <sighs> from Anne and from Betty. And that is something that he really did. Um, so that when Betty finds Charlie missing, the first person she, the second person she goes to is Lindbergh. And she says, do you have the baby? Please don't fool me. And that is what she actually said because she remembered this weird practical joke. He was given at this time to weirdly cruel practical jokes. It seems like he grew out of that. Um, okay. He, he was a man who almost fetishized detachment um, mm. and, you know, lack of sentimentality. Um, their, their child-rearing views that children must not be coddled, they must not be overwhelmed with affection, that um, they should be allowed to become self-sufficient, were not totally out of keeping with mainstream thought. You know, I feel like the pendulum always swing, swings back and forth. Yes. Mothers either ruin their children by neglecting them or by hovering over them. <laughs> right too much. And, you know, that seems to have been a, you will ruin your child by loving them too much era. Yeah. But he took it to extremes. He built a a pen in the yard and he left Charlie out there for hours. And the baby would cry, of course. And Betty went to Anne, this is all true. And she said, "I, I, I can't stand that this, please let me go to him. And Anne said, you know, there's nothing we can do, Betty. Oh, my goodness. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So they 
they did have, um, I mean, more him than Anne. I think Anne would be more given to cuddling. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, they have a, a singular approach to child rearing. <laughs> right. Um, and he had a very odd back, an, an odd, tumultuous upbringing as well. I mean, some of the roughness that he displayed towards Charlie did come from the way his father raised him. Right. Um, so can, what can you say about what you think about the case without, you know, spoiling the novel? Is there, is there anything you can say about your theory that would give listeners a glimpse or without revealing Right. Um, <laughs> Too much. I I think I mean I I think it's safe to say that I actually do believe that Houtman is guilty. Mm. And I know that that amazes people um when I say that, but I do think the evidence against him is pretty strong. Um however, I do believe also that it is likely that he had associates and the reason that the police believed uh the kidnapper had inside help is that charlie was kidnapped from the family's hopewell new jersey home and right. that they were they weren't living full-time in that house they were only there during the weekends and Usually by Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning, latest, they returned to their primary home, which was Anne's mother's estate in Englewood. Mm -hmm. He was taken on a Tuesday night, and that was the first Tuesday night the family had ever spent in the home. And anybody watching the house would have seen that. Mm -hmm. And the decision was taken last minute. Uh, because Charlie had had a cold and caught the cold. And she thought, forget it. I am not traveling all the way to Englewood. And she called Betty and asked her to come down and help her take care of the baby. And that phone call on Tuesday, late Tuesday morning, was the first time anyone outside the immediate family knew the family's plans had changed. And several of the staff members were aware of it. And that's why the police suspected the servants. Right. And I think it's a reasonable suspicion because how else, I mean, Bruno Richard Houtman lived in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. How else does he know the family's movements in fairly distant New Jersey? Yes. Yeah, it makes sense. Someone had to have been in on it on the inside. Yeah. Um, you've um, touched on this a little bit, but is there any more you can say about how you present the real Betty Gao in this novel? I know you said maybe she wouldn't even like that there's a novel about her, <laughs> but, but what do you really, what did you want readers to know about her from this book? What was interesting, because when I first started researching her, I kept an open mind about, was this going to be Betty Gao? the heroine? Was this going to be Betty Gow, the villain? Was she going to be the unwitting dupe right. of the story? And what I like is that at the point that we meet Betty, she's 
going on the interview for the job and she doesn't think she's going to get the job mm-hmm. and she's at a difficult kind of emotionally vulnerable point in her life. And what I like is that, and it feels very organic and true. I'm, I'm probably much more of it as invention than I'm realizing is that you see this young woman go through an unfathomable tragedy. Um, when they found Charlie's body, she was the one that they asked to identify him um, right. out of sensitivity to the mother. But no one seems mm. to have thought how devastating it would have been for the young woman who took care of him. Right. So she goes through that. She goes through the world believing that she's a suspect. And even after she was declared innocent, she still got you know, reams of hate mail mm-hmm. and threats. Mm-hmm. Um, she had to testify at the trial. She was tremendously nervous. And she emerges triumphant. And she emerges as a stronger, more centered person than she starts the novel. And one of the one of the really difficult things about telling this story is I thought how do I find this woman's happy ending? Yeah. You know, yeah. How, how, like, you know she, she never married. Mm-hmm. Um, she never had children of her own. Um, you know, not that that's a happy ending, obviously, but, right. um, you know, she, when she was younger, she did want to get married yes, and have right. children. And it's, it's, it's hard not to think that this loss had some impact mm-hmm. on her feelings. Um, so finding a place of strength for her at the end of the book, um, which felt real and earned, mm-hmm. um, that that was that was a happy thing for me. Um, right. The I'm just curious. The woman she was in the beginning, um, mm-hmm. who was uncertain and didn't think she was going to get the job, um, and. <laughs> And what she had gone through to to come to that point, was that all um, accurate? Yes. She did not think she would get the job. She was just coming off of a very bruising relationship. You know, she comes to America and let's see, I think a year and a half before she starts work with the Lindbergh's. And the first thing I noticed was she had a lot of jobs mm-hmm. in that time. She didn't seem able to settle. And at one point she goes to Detroit to meet up with an old boyfriend. And she's sort of hoping, oh, I'll get married. That'll that'll solve the problem. And right. they broke up broke up in a very humiliating fashion um, mm-hmm. for her. She found out he was cheating on her. Yeah. Um one of the key questions that I had for Mark Falzini that he was unable to answer was, I said, was she the eldest child or the youngest child? Because her mother, speaking to newspapers, said, is reported as saying, Betty is my oldest child. And in another newspaper, she's reported as saying, Betty is my youngest child. Oh. And I was completely obsessed with this question. It, it, it defined my whole approach <laughs> to the character, yeah. particularly as somebody in child care. Right. You know, was she an older sister who was totally used to 
caring for little children um, or, um, you know, was she the baby of the family? And it wasn't until her police interview where she identified her brother as being older than she was. Mm. And I thought, right, she's the youngest. Yes. Um, so I sort of have a vision, and this this is really where I made this. Yeah, I construed from the facts right. that she would have been the youngest of six. She would have been doted on. Her father died, I don't know when, at one point in her childhood, uh, but, and her mother remarried. Um, so I had this image of sort of the baby slash attention seeking, I'm sorry to use this word, brat mm. of the family. <laughs> um, you know, she's, if you look at pictures of her, she's a very pretty girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's a bit like self-possessed. She knows she, she knows she's cute. Right. Um, and, and she knows she's clever. Um, and she takes herself seriously. Um, so that's where I had her start out in the beginning. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to shift the conversation a little bit to mm-hmm. you. And I'm I'm wondering about, I know that you have published that series of um, mystery books. And I just wondered, have you always loved to write? Tell me about how you became a published author. I have always loved stories. Um, I think one of my earliest favorite books was uh, Richard Scarry's What Do People, Busy People Do All Day. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Remember that yes. book? It has, you know, all those drawings of, you know, the windows and you look inside the windows. Mm-hmm. And what are these people doing? Um, and, you know, I was, I was always a kid who played with dolls. You know, I, I made them have arguments and things <laughs> like that. Um, and, I was I was also a kid who had a uh, a speech defect as a child, okay. so I didn't do a lot of talking mm-hmm. uh, because you know children children will let you know when you're not when you're not getting it right. Um, so yes, from a yeah. very early yeah, <laughs> a very early age, uh, my father had an old typewriter, and I just spent a lot of time with that typewriter pounding out thoughts and stories and things like that. Um, and I've always loved, uh, historical fiction. I've always loved, uh, history. Mm-hmm. When, when I was, uh, very young, my, my parents took me to London, uh, yay parents. Um, and you know, what do you do with a kid in London? You take them to Hamley's and you take them to tea and you take them to Madame Tussauds mm-hmm. wax museum. And when I went, they still had the chamber of horrors and they had a lot of the historical figures, which they don't have so much now. Mm. Um, but they had this fabulous tableau of the little princes um, in the tower and, you know, the blonde page boy haircuts and, you know, they're clutching each other on the bed with the menacing pillow nearby. And I was so struck by the idea that children could be murdered because they had political 
significance. Mm. And that was sort of my way into, I wasn't quite ready for full history books. So I went into, you know, things like the Gene Plady novels, uh, Rosemary Holy Jarman, all the Wars of the Roses novels, which took me to Richard III. Was he guilty? Was he not guilty? Right. Um, and I think that that was sort of the start of the whole obsession. Okay. So as an adult, did you launch right into a writing career or, or how did that get off the ground? Um, I had several aborted launches. <laughs> um, As do most. <laughs> right. I came out of college thinking, of course, I will write my novel and I will send it off and it will be published right. and that then I will be a successful novelist for the rest of my life. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't work. And I think it was the third novel I was sending you around to agents and getting nowhere. Mm. And my husband suggested that I try something for young adult readers. And the second editor we sent that to took it. So I was like, oh. But I guess after like, I'm trying to remember now, eight young adult novels, Mm. I really wanted to write about adults. And I have a voice in my head and I thought, I love history, and I want to do something with this. So my, uh, my agent at the time said, nope, I have no interest in mm. trying to sell this. So I basically had to set fire to the career I had built wow. until that time and start totally new. Um, so fortunately, it worked out very well. And, and a piece of advice I always give writers is don't be afraid to change it up. If, it, if it's not work, if one path is not working for you, change it up. See what else you can do. Right. So tell me about the first adult novels you wrote and where you went from there. The first historical adult novel that I wrote was uh, Death of No Importance. Okay. Um, and that came into my head with the first line, which is, I will tell it and I will tell it badly. <laughs> and, you know, it was a really different experience re- coming up with Betty because with Betty, there were always hallmarks of who she was from history. Right. And with Jane Prescott, she gave me little clues, um, but, uh, you know, they were all from my subconscious and I wasn't, I never thought I could write historical fiction as much as I loved it because I thought you had to be a much better writer than I think I am at physical world building. Oh, wow. You know, I'm not, I'm not terrific at describing houses or clothes Mm. or, you know, weather or things like that those paragraphs in a book take a lot of work yeah. for me. But what I realized is you can do an enormous amount with voice. Yes. And that's that's why all my books so far have been first person. I just wrote my first third person book. Um so but I here's here's a, a historical fail. 
um, in my early draft of Death of No Importance, I put a zipper in a poire gown, and that oh. actually lost me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know what I was thinking. Why well, said no. I wasn't good at style? Um, that lost it's so me easy to do. She was. It, it was just boneheaded. <laughs> uh, but I did look up if people had zippers at that time. They did, just not in poire gowns. Uh. Um, so the thing that I thought that I could not do turned into, it was, you know, it, it sold. Um, it was nominated for an award. It sold relatively well. I mean, you know, it was a good, it was a, it was a very happy change. Right. Wonderful. Yes. And you do it well. I think, I think you're a better writer than you think you are. So. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I, I'm, I, I know how to work with my weaknesses now. Um, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm willing to take more risks than I used to be. Sure. Well, that's a good thing to learn. Yeah. 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 So what are you working on now? Can you tell us about that? I am expecting edits any moment on the next book, which is also a historical standalone based on a true crime. Uh, but this is a true crime that only, I have met one person who has ever heard of this event, and it's the 1911 assassination of David Graham Phillips. Hmm. Have you ever heard of it? No, I have not, but I am very <laughs> interested in, in that year. I, I actually love Oh. That time period. So tell me about the assassination of David Graham Phillips. He was a muckraking journalist turned novelist. Um, oh. And his subject as a novelist, he was very successful um, during that time, was often um, the awfulness of women who are wealthy and like culture and drive around in automobiles and are unkind to their husbands. Mm. And so I thought, well, I suggested this to my editor and she said, um, okay, that, that sounds like a good beginning. Uh, oh, and he was shot outside the Princeton club by Gramercy park. Wow. And she said, that's an interesting beginning, but I'd love to have a famous woman involved in the story somewhere. So I thought, oh, God, I don't uh, (laughs) uh, What was Edith Wharton doing at that time? (laughs) And I thought she probably wasn't even in New York in 1911. Mm. But it turns out, I squinched it a little bit time-wise, within a few months... She had been at the Belmont Hotel, to which she had summoned her lover, her best friend, Walter Berry, who many people thought was her lover, Mm. and Henry James. And she asked them, should I leave my publisher? Should I leave America? And should I leave my husband? Wow. And she was exactly the kind of woman that David Graham Phillips would have detested. Mm -hmm. And she in fact did read his last novel. So I thought these two writers have to be in a conversation together in some ways. So I thought Edith, in order to get a break from all of her emotional turmoil, 
will decide she has to be the one to solve the mystery. Um, so, uh, and solve it, she does. Wow. That is cool. Oh yeah. It was, it was very intimidating to write as Edith Wharton. I'm going to say that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But you said, is this what the one that's third person actually, rather than first person? Yes. Okay. And, and first I thought it was just total cowardice on my part. And then I realized her novels are mostly third person. Right. And it, it, I, I think it would have been odd to do it in first person. I also think she's not the sort of person who would, you know, the Jane Prescott novels, you have a sense of a woman looking back and sharing her life with you. I don't think Edith Wharton would just share her life with anybody. Mm. So I think it made sense for it to be uh, not so confessional. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so this is a question I ask all my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? That's such an interesting question. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm going in so many directions with it. Um, I can only speak for myself. And I think, that engaging with history on a daily basis and sort of digging into it mm -hmm. keeps me aware of how hard it is to know something, hmm. but how, impo how important it is to always push for that knowledge and that understanding. Mm, yes. um, you know, if you look at an event to ask yourself, who's telling you about this event? Were they present at the event? What is the bias of that person? Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they're wrong, right. but it means you take it into consideration. Um, you know, I'm, I'm often struck when I talk to people about the Lindbergh kidnapping, and so far it's been a, a total joy to talk to readers of the book, but a lot of the time they say of somebody, I just, I have a gut feeling that he's guilty or innocent. Mm. And I think it's, it's really fine. I mean, we all have our gut feelings when we approach a story or an event, but then you have to grapple with the facts. Right. Um, particularly when you're talking about guilt or innocence. Yes. Um, you know, I also think it gives me, it can give you perspective. Um, you know, a lot of friends of mine in the really in the, in the bad days of COVID when it was becoming clear, we were not all getting out of our houses <laughs> after a few weeks. Right. We're posting on social media, you know, I feel like these are the darkest times mm. ever. And I thought, you know, for you personally, yes, you know, maybe you are going through, and I would never say, no, you're not. Right. But I thought historically, oh my God, we don't even come close. Yes. <laughs> um, right. It's the darkest time in that we remember, you know, right. as a whole, as a, as a world, but right. even our, our parents and grandparents lived through much darker times. Yeah. I mean, my father fought in World War II. My mother went 
through the depression. Mm -hmm. I mean, she had kids who didn't come back to class because they got polio. Mm, Yeah. Um, And so I think perspective is good. Yes, absolutely. So Mariah, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Oh, I have a website, uh, mariahfrederick'sbooks.com, and there's a way to write me uh, on the contact info. And, you know, people should absolutely do so because I really love hearing from readers and talking with readers and even arguing with readers. Um, I really, I really enjoy that. Um, And this has been a total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, thank you so much for being with us today, Mariah. Well, my friends, I know that you enjoyed that conversation with Mariah Fredericks. Do not forget to check out the show notes, either in your favorite listening app or on the website at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash blog. That is where I link to Mariah's books and her website and to other things that we mentioned in our conversation. And also, if you'd like to support the show, I would love for you to subscribe or follow the show in your favorite listening app um, and leave a rating and review that really helps people find the podcast. And also, if you so desire to support us in a monetary way, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Treat, A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. And you can also get there from the show notes. I always link to it. Also, follow us on Instagram at Historical Fiction Unpacked and find the Facebook group where you can join the conversation. That is on Facebook. You can just search for Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. You can also get there from the show notes. There's so much in the show notes. Make sure you look at them. So, my friends, I, as usual, love to close the show with a quote. And this one is from Anne Morrow Lindeberg. I I looked at quotes from Charles, but you know what? I just don't have the greatest taste in my mouth from about Charles Lindbergh after reading this book and talking with Mariah about him. So I'm sharing a quote from his wife. She said, don't wish me happiness. I don't expect to be happy all the time. It's gotten beyond that somehow. Wish me courage and strength and a sense of humor. I will need them all. I think that's great advice for all of us. And also, keep reading historical fiction, my friends. I will talk to you again next week.